Hello and welcome. My name is Tom Ashton and I'm back for more bloody violent history with James Jackson. Together we're going to talk about moments from the past that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Today we're going to discuss secret police. Some of the names and acronyms are familiar to you. KGB, Gestapo, Stasi, others perhaps less so. Democratic countries have secret security services which, with mixed results, protect the citizens of a country. Secret police might nominally be charged and promoted as the servant of their people, but this is not what they do in actuality. What they do is maintain and keep in place the dictatorial regime ruling a country. They are an instrument of oppression and control, a praetorian guard answerable to the man at the top, the party machine, the dictator. They are a symbol of oppression and control. They maintain the personality cult of the great leader and this is all achieved with the help of informants, arrest, interrogation, torture and summary execution. So Jamie, here we are in room 101 and we're going to start with the Spanish Inquisition. The Tribunal of the Holy Office was extremely important uh, both for the Spanish and for the papacy. It was there to root out dissidents and to enforce an orthodoxy and that really is what we're talking about. Although people wouldn't see it as a secret police force today, it had many of the sort of state-backed instruments to ensure that the orthodoxy was not challenged. So when it was set up in the late 15th century, it allowed torture, for example, it regulated torture, but torture nevertheless. It had auto de fe, it had burnings at the stake, it had denunciations, and the edict of faith allowed people to denounce others. And you, there was no defence. You could be sent to jail for two years before your trial even came about. Why was it Spain rather than Rome and the Vatican that was doing this? Because this came about under King Ferdinand II and Isabella, Ferdinand and Isabella, and they felt they were fighting a holy war. First of all, they wanted to enforce the papal form of Christianity. They didn't want a sort of reformation in Spain. Secondly, they then turned on the Jews. And thirdly, in Spain... Uh, there was a clampdown on Islam. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella got rid of a lot of Muslims from their country. I mean, we mentioned this in our Pirates uh, podcast, the fact that so many Muslims were expelled. But there were confessions, and one of the jobs of the Inquisition was to ensure that people were actually not only confessing, but converting to Christianity. And it wasn't just a ruse. It wasn't just surface deep. So it's a genuine conversion. So they would check up on them and things like that. Oh, they would certainly check up on them. And you could be severely punished if you didn't. It, again, it's just like the Nazis or it's just like what happened in the Soviet Union. It's this idea that you could not deviate from the rules. You, you had to abide by a strict code. And everything was given a sort of 
fraudulent legitimacy, if you like. Even the torture, you, you were examined by a physician beforehand. There was a certain number of tortures that could be committed against the individual. Um, you know, it, it was very so regulated. So it was all sort of correctly done according to their set of rules, even though their rules were completely twisted and insane. It, it, it was by the book. And yeah. by the time you get to the blood councils in the Low Countries, you had tens of thousands being burnt at the stake by the Papal Inquisition. This was under Charles VI. So, you know, there was a, there, there was a great deal of torture, many, many burnings going on. And when you say the Low Countries, essentially you mean Holland or the Netherlands? Yes, what we call the Netherlands today. And you know, this is one of the reasons that, that Elizabeth I and Walsingham, you know, when they were basically trying to find allies to fight Spain and King Philip II of Spain and ward off invasion plans of Spain, you know, why they put out feelers to the resistance in, in the Low Countries because what was happening was a, was a huge resistance movement and the Spanish were pretty barbaric towards that resistance. And the, res oh, the resistance was partly the Protestant movement was it completely right. uh, and and this is what the fight was about and they were a very effective resistance it was their fly boats it was their uh, shallow draft boats that did so much to hamper uh, the invasion craft of the duke of parma during the spanish armada of 1588 and their inquisitors um their secret police what kind of tortures were they administering to convert people and so on Oh, they did a lot of gauntlets and spikes and all brandings, all the things that you would expect of secret police and, and torturing. And, and this went on uh, for decades to come. There were manuals on how to apply tortures. And just as we see in the 20th century, you had travelling inquisitors, travelling interrogators. Uh, Tokamada, the, the great papal inquisitor, um, he started as a sort of regional chief and then ended up as the chief of the official uh, Spanish Inquisition. So you knew when he turned up in town that uh, you were in for a bad time? You definitely knew you were in for a bad time. And it, you know, it started with this idea that during Mass in church you had 30 days from then to look at your soul and then make a confession. Uh, they then dropped the 30 days and you were put on the spot at that point and torture could be unleashed at any moment. And I imagine one of the techniques was that they were putting people in every village against each other. Oh, they were. I mean, denunciation was the key, just as we'll see later on with the, the French Revolution, for example, jacuzzi becomes a very useful tool of secret police. It, it is incredible how many informants there are, you know, whether it's the Stasi uh, in East Germany or whether it was the Gestapo during the Second World War. Yeah, or even the um, people in Cuba under the Castro regime. Um, every other person was kind of having to say something about their neighbour. Well, this is, this is how it works. It becomes sort of self-fulfilling. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, this kind of thing goes back to ancient times. I mean, whether it's the Chinese and the Ming Dynasty uh, murdering 15,000 people on one occasion, or, you know, you can go back to ancient Rome and the Praetorian Guard who initially were there to guard the emperor and eventually became the people who could decide who the emperor was. But we want to move forward in time and talk about the French Revolution. So most of us have heard a little bit about the terror, which was uh, what happened, what started in 1793 in Paris. Uh, Jamie, what happened there? Terror just about sums it up because you have this factionalism among the revolutionaries and the extreme, the Jacobins, really led by Robespierre. So, uh, sorry, the, the the revolution had happened a couple of years before and kicked off. Yes, and the king had been executed and the Jacobins on the Revolutionary Council had set, had really taken over and they started introducing laws. They ended up suspending the constitution they introduced the law of suspects and then the law of 22 prairials. And this was the idea that you could be denounced, you could be dragged b before the revolutionary tribunal, and you had no right to defence. So you ended up in Paris with 2,600 people being guillotined, being dragged to the guillotine across France as a whole. You ended up with up to 17,000 people being sentenced to death and guillotined. And there was no let-up. I mean, you could be accused from the age of 14 to 92. That's the age range of those who went to the guillotine. Uh, who was running all of this? It, it was the Revolutionary Council, and Rosepierre headed it up. But he had, essentially, his governors, his police, his secret police, going throughout the provinces. There were 82 representatives who went to the provinces and tortured with impunity and guillotined people with impunity around France. So by the end of the terror, you actually ended up with probably about 40,000 people being murdered uh, by the revolutionaries. And it ranged from aristocrats to peasants to the bourgeoisie, uh, to, to, the bourgeoisie <laughs> to nuns, to clerics, bishops. I mean, no one was safe because denunciation was the key. And that that's really what we're talking about in terms of secret police. They are part of the instrument of terror. They yeah. are part of the overall uh, construct that a totalitarian state creates around it. And if you go to the conciergerie today and see the ladder up and down, which Robespierre went to his bedroom in between interrogating people and den and taking denunciations. It, it really puts a chill up your spine. It, it's pretty terrifying. But like all revolutions, like all police states, they end up devouring their own. And it's interesting that, first of all, Robespierre uh, essentially destroyed all the factions who were fighting each other. He he had the, the leaders guillotined and then he was overthrown himself because the terror got out of hand and people were so fearful. A bit like the doctors and, and courtiers who stood back while Stalin was dying. No one wanted to get close. No one wanted to save someone or put their neck on the, on the line. Uh, for someone who could easily turn around and kill them. So that is one of the problems with these 
police states, these secret police states. And you see the number of um, KGB men, the KGB bosses, who have been devoured by their systems over the years, and certainly under Stalin. It, it, it's not a safe position. However psychopathic and brutal you are, it catches up with you in the end. And this is exactly what happened uh, during the French Revolution. And when did all this happen, Jamie? It essentially happened between September 1793 and July 1794. So that spasm of violence, that spasm of extreme cruelty and brutality was during that sort of limited period. And you can see from the number of people being guillotined in Paris, I mean, on Christmas Day uh, 1793, you had 247 people being taken on tumbrils to the guillotine. So a lot of heads were rolling. And all these symbols of that oppression of that state, you know, whether it's the guillotine or the tricketeurs, the old women who used to knit watching the heads roll, I mean, each sort of revolution, each revolutionary state has these symbols that stand out. You know, just as in 1871, it was the petrolers, the women who went around burning houses. And the Saint-Colotte. Yes. I mean, the, the, these are the sorts of things that grow up out of these these terrible situations. And they, I mean, you mentioned Christmas Day. Was that uh, done because they were essentially an atheistic organisation, so they wanted to make a point? They were certainly making an anti-clerical comment on um, that particular time. And they wanted to expunge Catholicism, uh, which they saw associated with royalty from the, the the French way of life, and that sort of secularism survives in France to this day. So, a particularly unpleasant individual, one of these representatives, was the executioner of Lyon, Joseph Fouché, and it sort of foreshadows Klaus Barbie and the Gestapo in the nineteen forties, who was known, of course, as the butcher of Lyon. So. Fouché was a classic example, and again, it shows what secret policemen really are. That they're, they're, they're on one hand, they're butchers and psychopaths; on the other hand, they're bureaucrats. And it doesn't really matter who they serve, as long as they're in command, as long as they're not the ones being tortured or guillotined. You know, they are perfectly happy. And if you take someone like Fouché, he ended up crossing sides turning against Robespierre, setting him up for his downfall, and became chief of police for Napoleon in the end. But if you look at his record, my God, he was psychopathic. I mean, he, he specialised in tying prisoners together and firing grape shot at them until they were mutilated and maimed, and then they were finished off with uh, blades. And he killed hundreds in that fashion. In fact, he, he ended up being recalled to Paris and, and told to calm things down a bit because he was so cruel. But well, What he was he trying to himself. establish by doing this? Was he just trying to make everybody basically kowtow to the revolution? Or? Completely. And it's to do with enforcing terror. It's to do with enforcing fear. And we see that with a checker in revolutionary Russia later on with Felix Zezinsky, you know, where he said that he was, his organisation was the personification of terror. And that is essentially what the secret police are. They are the sharp end of enforcement and oppression. And there's no right of appeal. There's no right to a defence. 
and you can just disappear. And you see that in secret police states from Chile, Argentina, all the way back to revolutionary France. So what they've learned, at least since 1871, was that these organisations have to be extremely barbaric and cruel to be able to push through their whatever they're going to do with their regime. Well, that's the one thing Lenin learned from the Commune in 1871 in Paris. He said the reason it failed, it wasn't tough enough, it wasn't cruel enough, it didn't exterminate its enemies fast enough. And so th if, if there's one lesson that, that secret police know, it's that you don't leave witnesses, you don't lead people alive, and you don't leave evidence that can be brought against them later on. No mercy. No mercy. Uh, but you always keep your options open, just as Himmler did towards the end of the war, uh, trying to negotiate with the Allies. You know, they're always keeping the door open to see if they can switch sides, as, as so many Gestapo, former Gestapo members did, switching to the Stasi or working for the Galen organisation, uh, Reinhard Galen's organisation, uh, and the CIA post-World War II, fighting the Soviets. It makes mockery of uh, people calling uh, these organisations left-wing or right-wing. They're not either-wing, are they? They're a complete uh, sort of thing on their own. Well, well, well they're, they're part of the same spectrum. In, in, in a way, it's a circle. You, yeah. jo you join together in the end. In the pits. Now to Russia and the Russian Revolution of 1917. Lenin, in 1917, appoints Felix Dzinsky as the head of the secret police. And Dzinsky's view on how to manage the situation, he stated as follows. We represent in ourselves organised terror. That was his rule of thumb. He wasn't kidding either. I, I mean, the the Red Terror that lasted from 1918 to 1922 uh, immediately killed about 100,000 people. You know, it was this enforcement. It was that lesson that we talked about that Lenin had learned from the Paris Commune of 1871, which collapsed because they weren't cruel enough. It wasn't a tough enough tyranny. And you can see what happened. I mean, if you take March 1919, when the Cheka forces went in to the Putilov factory, which was striking, and just immediately, summarily executed 200 of the strike ringleaders. And that's the sort of thing that happens. And that's really the beginning of a police state. Oh, and also, 200 ringleaders. There were only 900 in the factory. So, I mean, it was... Uh, you know, it wasn't like one or two ringleaders. It was basically a fifth of, of, of everybody in there. Indeed. And every time that uh, the OGPU, the secret police, or the checker, or whatever you call the secret police of that period, you know, every time they executed people during the week, the, those results, those execution figures, would be published in the national press. And it was the idea that you had to terrify people. You had to absolutely crush them into the dirt to ensure that they were subservient, that they were subjugated, and that they would pay homage to the man in charge and to the party and the state. And there was no deviation from that. And that's the moment where 
the secret police become the key to enforcing that orthodoxy that we mentioned with the French Revolution and with the uh, Spanish Inquisition. You know, it is almost a religion. Uh, and they go from being the uh, tip of the spear, as you say, of the, the great leader or whatever, to becoming the people who are in charge of the whole show and appointing their own person at the top. Is that well, not the ultimate aim? Well, that, the is, that is the evolution. Um, you, you saw the KGB take over with Andropov. You, you saw the state machine moving in, the secret police machine moving in. And if you look at Russia today, you, you actually have more informants per member of the population. You have more members of the FSB, internal security, uh, per head of the population than you did during the, the KGB era. And you get a KGB man in charge running Russia. The uh, KGB or the uh, whatever you call the intelligence apparatus today. Or the FSB. Yes, yeah, right. yes. But the intelligence machine actually not only owns Russia's oil, it is in charge of Russia's nuclear warheads. It, it, it in a way, is no longer run by the state. It runs the state. So it's turned the whole secret police thing on its head. You know, this is where the secret police becomes the secret state. Yeah, because I would have thought some people would would think that in the Soviet Union days uh, there would be more KGB agents, but apparently it's uh, for every 428 citizens there's one there was one KGB agent, whereas today there is one agent for every 297 citizens, one FSB agent. So uh, the numbers have doubled. And, and we've been talking about secret police being an instrument of tyranny and terror and orthodoxy, imposing an orthodoxy. It is one strut of basically expunging democracy from the system and it goes hand in hand with getting rid of a free press or investigative journalists of seeing dissidents either killed or put in jail or forced into exile you know these are the sorts of things you might not have the gulag system but there are other ways of control and the secret police are still very much in charge and it seems like the numbers uh, just uh, are grow exponentially and become less and less important. I mean, in, in that um, you mentioned 100,000 killed in the time of Lenin, but by the time they got round to the purges, we're talking about a million, and then the Ukraine in 1928. Yes, they were all part of the system of deculacization, industrialization, collectivization, and anyone who stood in the path of that was simply destroyed. I mean, the terror from 36 to 38, as you said, killed a million. The starvation, the ordered starvation that Stalin imposed on the Ukraine, uh, killed up to 4 million people. and 30% of the population. Yes, and yeah. across Russia as a whole, uh, Stalin's believed to have killed up to 30 million people. So, you know, whether it's the gulag or starvation or any of these other things, you know, or, or just going through a list saying kill 10,000 people, th that's what the secret police were there to do on cue. And it's quite interesting that Oleg Gordievsky, who defected to, to, to Britain, his father was KGB and had taken part in all sorts of massacres. And never mentioned it, I don't think was particularly troubled by it, that that was just part of the system. 
and you did it out of loyalty and you did it because you didn't want to be next on the list. So for the Russians, Jamie, what is your overall impression of how the secret police have operated there over the last century? Well, what stands out, we've talked about the, the, the oppression of the French Revolution. For, for me, what so vividly stands out about the Soviet oppression, there are two things. First of all is that statue, that famous 15-ton statue of Felix Zezinski that was toppled uh, in Zezinski Square in front of the Lubyanka and the KGB headquarters, the, the one to which I f- gave the finger when I was a teenager. That, that's a statue that, that I'll always remember. And the other thing I remember were, were the stories of how people in their apartments used to see smoke coming through the walls because the secret police were sitting behind the walls just watching them and smoking cigarettes uh, so, so that's what stands out. There are always these different things that, that, that come to mind, these different images that really symbolise oppression and the secret police state. And that, for me, is what does it. Did Dzinski survive? He did survive. He, and, he retired uh, and died, a, died in his own bed. Yes, he, 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 he wasn't killed like the later members of the KGB, the later chiefs of the KGB, who were all killed by their underlings, essentially, who then took over and in turn were killed. So now we come to our old friends, the Nazis, but really this, uh, this section is about the Nazis and how people in the Gestapo became officers and agents for the Stasi after the end of the Second World War. But in the war, um, certainly the Gestapo developed some extremely cruel and unpleasant methods for uh, getting information out of their prisoners. As an example, beating their prisoners with... There was one officer who used to beat them with a rhino whip and he could beat his prisoners to death, much like in the time of the Tsar, the punishment for the serfs if they were infringing something would be to be beaten with the knout which is um, a heavy sort of whip with hooks and bits of metal in it which uh, the particularly vicious form of that they could actually break the back of the person being whipped and then they would die well that gestapo man actually had a reputation of being able to remove heads with his rhino whip so it, it just became the norm and like so many of these secret police units around the world, they just attract all the lowlife, all the psychopaths who are looking for an outlet and looking for a rung on the ladder that will get them into official positions. Human nature does not change, as we've seen time and time again through this podcast series. And the secret police always attract a certain type. And viciousness and violence becomes the norm. I, I always remember the story of the young SAS officer who was captured and, of course, Hitler had his commando order and wanted them all tortured and killed and that none of them should go to prisoner of war camps and be allowed to survive. And there was one SAS officer. They, they tortured and beat him every day and every day he would just shout, fuck the Germans, every time they entered his cell. And he did that every day until the last day when he was murdered. And it really epitomises 
the, the secret police state, that this became the norm, whether it was beating people to death or guillotining them or throwing them alive into furnaces. And, and, and that's before you even get to the concentration camps and death camps. This is before you even get to the Holocaust. This is about oppressing your own kind, oppressing your own people and those that you have taken over. So there are always people willing to collaborate with these people? Completely. I mean, look at the quizzling regime in Norway, for example. But if ever you want a good example, you can see how the French behaved during the Second World War. And it's fairly telling that when the Gestapo advertised in Paris for an auxiliary Gestapo among the French, they wanted 2,000. 6,000 applicants came forward. So that was the Carlinga group. And, and they, they had a reputation for appalling viciousness during the war. We mentioned this in our uh, Secret Sites podcast, but you look at the number of uh, hotels in what was then Vichy France that, that had rooms given over to torture. They had bedsteads with no mattresses on which people could be tied and tortured. And this was going on all the time. And the Carlinga group, the auxiliary Gestapo, were also known as the Bonnet Lafont group or gang. And you know, that was set up by a former French policeman and a former petty criminal. And they went to work. They executed scores of people. And then we come on to the end of the war and the re-employment of some of these appalling people in the Stasi, which is the East German secret police. It's very easy to move across. You know, if there's a regime, you're not going to worry whether it's communist or whether it's Nazi. They, they need your services, so you provide them. And... What's fascinating about the Stasi is, yes, they were brutal. The regime was absolutely terrible. But they took the concept of informants to a completely new level. It was every block of flats had an informant in it. I mean, everyone was watching everyone else. And they they sort of refined the worst bits of the way the Russians behave in their secret police and the, and the Gestapo. So they, you know, they brought a sort of German efficiency to the barbaric practices of the KGB. Oh, yes, they had a concept called Zetsum, which was deconstruction. They would basically drive you mad. They would move furniture around. They would fake affairs that you might have had so that you would break up with your, your wife or husband. They would change the clocks in your flat. They would bug you. They would make sure that you lost your job. I mean, they really played with people's minds. And it, it was Orwellian. And there are still thousands of people today who are on disability benefit because they were so mentally disturbed by what was going on. And you can see the level of cruelty. I mean, I've heard uh, a clip of uh, a secret court in East Germany, that was sentencing a woman to death and she was screaming and, and crying. And this judge was ranting at her and it was so like Roland Freisler, the, the Nazi judge, the mad judge who had condemned all the anti-Nazi plotters and members of the White Rose. Nothing had changed. But and he had the curtain behind his 
chair, did he? On the guillotine. Well, that that, that, was, that that was in Prague. I mean, that that was terrible. It, it it was the people who were hunting the the killers of the Great Escape. Uh, POWs, they, they went to Prague and they found a, a courtroom and there was a curtain behind. And they well, behind the judge's behind chair. The, behind the judge's chair. And they yeah. drew back the curtain and there was a rail with meat hooks on. So they were taking people from summary court uh, convictions, uh, taking them behind. And just hooking ha- them up. Hooking them up and then pushing them along the wire to the coffins in the next door room. And there was a guillotine there. So... You know, those sort of people, those people who could inflict that sort of barbarism were very quickly immersed in the Stasi, were, were embraced into the, into the Stasi. But what is fascinating is that the Stasi were an information-gathering organisation as secret police. They never really got rid of information. So when the wall came down and when East Germany collapsed, they didn't have any decent paper shredders. They couldn't shred all the evidence. So today, the, the German government have got software that can put together all the partly burnt papers and all the partially shredded papers and, and put all the pieces of information back together again. And discover who was doing who, what who, to who. Who, who was informing. It, but except it turned out that they were all informing. I mean, not all, but I mean, there's not going to be very many innocent people. No, no not, not in that regime. And if you think it's going to be the equivalent of a thousand-year Reich, you tend to buy into the system that's there. And it's, it, they always estimate there were probably uh, up to or more than half a million informants uh, to the Stasi. And that is what a secret police state does. Yeah. It's, it's and what terrifying. was the population? 20 million, something like that. Could be. Yeah, I reckon it was about that. All right, let's leave the Stasi and head across the Atlantic to South America and some terrible goings-on in Chile and Argentina. So Chile first. Uh, Pinochet was a dictator, the dictator in Chile from 1973 to 1990. What happened there, Jamie? Well, there's so many of those Nazis, so many of those people post-Second World War simply emigrated to South America and found their home among these regimes, whether it was in Bolivia or Chile or Argentina or Paraguay. And their services were needed. If you look at the torture and the oppression and the secret police of these dictators out there, so many of them learnt lessons from uh, the the Nazis, from the people who were migrating uh, to help their cause. And, you know, there were a flock of travelling executioners and travelling interrogators and torturers, such as Klaus Barbie and his uh, fiancés of death, as they were called in Bolivia. So Chile was no exception to those who gave a welcome not only to ex-Nazis but also to those sort of techniques. And you know, tens of thousands were tortured in Chile. You had people brought aboard a naval training ship, for example, Esmeralda, that ended up in the tall ships race. She was used as a floating base in which to torture and interrogate and abuse prisoners and and many people were killed on board 
Huh. Yeah, they were beaten, sexually assaulted, electrocuted and tortured with uh, water boarding, as well as being murdered and tos uh, tossed overboard. And that's on top of the 20,000 uh, who were incarcerated in, in the National Stadium in, in Chile. And, and that became, I mean, if you've ever seen the film Missing, you know, that became a notorious centre for torture and incarceration and people were being electrocuted, as you say, burnt with cigarette butts, had their heads smashed against concrete walls. And again, this is classic secret police tactics. It's not just detaining people off the streets or raiding their homes. It, it's, it's making a mass demonstration of the power of the state. And the secret police are the enforcers of that. And on the other side of the Andes, you've got Ar Argentina and the ESMA. Well, that was notorious, the Naval Mechanical School. It was a torture centre, and of the 5,000 people who were held captive there, 90% of those died in captivity, including nuns. Died or disappeared. Died they? or yeah. disappeared. Yeah. I mean, it was the most terrible thing, and, and it's known that many of the people who were killed were drugged, uh, and, and dropped the sharks in the ocean, were taken by helicopter and, and dropped in the ocean, uh, alive, it, to, to drown or to be fed to the sharks. It was really horrific what was going on uh, out in Argentina under the hunter. And there was one particularly unpleasant individual who, who uh, did meet his just desserts eventually, Alfredo Assis. Yes, Alfredo Estes was was a lieutenant commander, and he was known as the Angel of Death. So you can see how his yeah, reputation the blonde preceded Angel him. of Death. Yes, yes, yeah. and uh, the Vice Angel, and he was actually captured on South that's, Georgia. That's a movie reference, indeed. <laughs> but he was captured on South Georgia by British forces during the Falklands War, and was sent back to Argentina. But justice did catch up with him because he was given life imprisonment eventually when the hunter fell. But these are the sort of lunatics that end up being drawn to work for a totalitarian regime. These are the enforcers. OK, back across the Atlantic again to Africa, where we've got some flamboyant, although deeply unpleasant, secret police operating. For example, in Uganda, when Idi Amin was in charge... Oh, the Bureau of State Research. I mean, the, the extraordinary thing about so many of the African and the sort of Caribbean despots is that their secret police weren't that secret because the, the, the emphasis was on public oppression, you know, of making a statement and doing that old Felix Szczesinski thing of being the instruments of terror and fear. And so the Bureau of State Research... You know, they used to go around in sort of uh, Kaunda suits, in floral shirts and bell-bottom trousers and the obligatory shades that they wore. Uh, but uh, again, don't be fooled by how they looked, how ridiculous they looked. They used to spirit people away to the prison on Nakasero Hill outside Kampala and they'd never be seen again. So it was really an instrument of oppression and brutality. What's so extraordinary is that they were trained by so many different people. Like on one stage, they were trained by the Israelis. As we know, uh, 
Armin fell out with Israel big time. Um, you look at the Entebbe raid and you can see why. And then they were trained by the KGB. So the Russians were getting their, their claws in uh, as, as well, trying to gain influence. Because we've talked about this in other podcasts, that training bodyguards or training the paramilitaries and special forces is a great way of gaining influence on a country's affairs. And it's interesting, this this sort of um, symbiotic relationship between the dictators and their secret police. Uh, and one of the things I came across was this idea of coup-proofing for dictators, which I thought was quite quite good. Essentially, you know, the dictator is in danger of being superseded by someone else, quite possibly the head of the secret service. And the way to avoid that, I think Hitler was pretty good at this, One, there are two things you have to do. The first is division of power. And I think Hitler was well known for divvying up different things to different people, Goering, Himmler, Goebbels, uh, and all of that that, that coterie of, of baddies that um, ran underneath him. And then the second thing is you purge in favour of your family or tribe. So you basically put people in charge, dotted around, and they're all really loyal to you, not just through some sort of friendship, but through blood ties. Well, this is why you don't get democracy flourishing in so many of these countries, because not only does it suit the, the, the secret police chief or your family members or tribal members to stay in power so that you can be favoured, but also, uh, and avoid being killed, but also because it's your only means to add the access of, of wealth in the country. Uh, and, and that's the problem with actually having any sort of democracy. You go over to Haiti, of course, and the symbol of oppression there, and probably one of the worst secret police states in the world under both Papa Doc and Baby Doc Duvalier, was their volunteers of national security. You can do the French for me, Tom. Uh, I'm so looking forward to you being <laughs> volunteer security nationale. There you go. <laughs> Become its chief. <laughs> but th th they were totally barbaric and again you know in a, a, a fairly low population you're talking about 30,000 people just being vanished from the face of the earth and again they were pretty visible and they were linked to voodoo and they were part of that whole oppressive image and and rather than the floral shirts of Idi Amin uh, Papa Doc and Baby Doc's uh, VSN used to go around in sort of denim and straw hats and the rap brown chaise, that was, that was par for the course. But they used to burn people alive, mutilate them, torture them and hang the corpses in trees as part of a sort of overall voodoo ritual. And in fact, their chief went one further. He, he used to force people to give blood, which he then sold to medical institutions in America and elsewhere around the world. He was known as the Vampire of the Caribbean. So it was pretty grim. Oh, and so as to not leave out Southeast Asia in this pantheon of baddies, the Khmer Rouge. What about them, Jamie? Yes, I mean, their secret police was set up quite early, I mean, even before they got into power, the Santa Bell, and they ran all the 150 execution sites 
and we've gone through before in podcasts about the horrors of Cambodia. But again, this is the totality of the secret state, the, the, the killing state and the secret police, the organs of oppression. You can trace them all the way back through all the other secret police organisations to these totalitarian states. And, and I think that through all the secret police forces that we've mentioned, there runs this theme that if you're answerable just to the state and not to the people, if you don't have the, the balancing aspects of, of power, the, the, the sort of equality before the law, uh, a free press... You are never going to get a properly democratic regime. You are always going to run the risk of oppression. Do you think it's a waste of time for, for democracies to try and, you know, show people how to run a democratic country in these places where they just never really seem to be interested in it? I mean, I, I, th I think we've tried in many cases over and, the and years. And failed. And failed, and whether it's through aid or whether it's through invasion, you, you end up with the same result: that that countries will revert to type. You know, the countries will end up with the sort of regimes that suit their culture. So you you can't really impose a, a homogeneity or democracy from the outside. You can show them uh, how it is you can show them the advantages of it but ultimately it's up to those people and if those people aren't going to fight for freedom if they're not going to stand up and say this is how we want to be governed then you're always going to end up with either a clan-based tribal base or secret police-based society yeah depressing there you go Well, Jamie, that just about brings it to a close. Uh, one more thing, our postscript. We're going to talk about the Chinese. Well, China is a good place to end because in a way it's the natural evolution of the secret police state. It's where things can get to with the technology. We, we spoke of what happened in East Germany and the refinement of oppressive tools and techniques. But when you get the technology of today added to the mix, then you're in a dangerous situation. And if you look at China and its Skynet system, you know, the, the, the last time that anyone bothered to count, there were 200 million plus cameras in China. And those cameras are going to be linked to artificial intelligence, to facial recognition, to social credit. So there is going to be a vast data bank on every individual. And that is a system of control. And that control is in the hands of the secret police and the state and the party, uh, which are a whole. And so it'll be interesting to watch, but it's certainly not a system that any of us want to be part of uh, in free liberal Western democracies. It's something that's pretty terrifying and that we have to uh, keep a watch on because it's too easy. It can, it can happen here. And with artificial intelligence and modern technology, the banning of VPNs in China, you've got a 
pretty desperate situation and one that can only get worse. And, and given that the Chinese themselves, the citizens, have to use sort of code words and euphemisms to get round the sort of recognition features, the word recognition on social media, you know, then you've got a problem. Then you've got a system that, that is very oppressive. The fact that social media is crashed the whole time by the Chinese state whenever they think things are getting out of control or gossip is becoming too rampant. Hmm. So it, it's one to watch. And, and that is where the secret police state can end. Ah, Skynet. I wonder what the Chinese is for, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> right, that's quite enough of these grim characters and events. Not a grain of humour amongst their psychotic ranks. I think we should dust off our dinner jackets and head off to the secret policeman's ball. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Please subscribe on BVH on your podcast. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can find us on our website at bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.